Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In a little over a month from now, on August 26th, all phone calls made in the 717 area code will have to be made to include the area code rather than just a seven-digit number. In fact, the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission would like you callers to start doing that now to get in the habit. A new area code, 223, will be introduced. It's because the 717 area code is running out of numbers. To explain more and answer questions, we're... Joined by Niels Fredrickson, press secretary with the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission. Niels, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for helping us highlight this issue. Well, if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1 800 729 7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so Niels, 717 was running out of numbers with cell phones, fax machines, even though I haven't used a fax machine in about two years. Uh, Give us some backstory on this. What was considered along the way, and how did we get to this point? Well, it, it's actually more than, more than just the cell phones and fax machines, but it, it's just been the tremendous explosion in the use of numbers. Uh, if you think about it, uh, 20 years ago, there was concern about the supply of numbers running short because people were adding extra telephone numbers to businesses or sometimes to homes for things like fax machines or Internet dial-up. Very few people do that anymore. But now if you look at what a household has, maybe a household has even cut its copper lines, but chances are everyone who's a teenager or an adult in the household has a cell phone. They all have numbers. You may have a cellular data-enabled tablet or multiple ones of those. They have numbers. Portable Wi-Fi hotspots have numbers attached to them. Uh, automotive Wi-Fi systems, uh, which are which are growing now, have numbers attached to them. Uh, and then you you know you have the fact that the region continues to grow in population, and businesses continue to flourish. So the appetite for phone numbers is much greater, and. With phone number portability, people will move across the country, but they may keep their number. So even if somebody leaves the 717 area, um, they'll likely still take their number with them. So the number of, of, of available numbers that are coming back into that pool is much less than the number going out. Um, about 20 years ago, uh, there were steps taken. Uh, you know, folks in the 717 may remember when the northeastern part of, of the region was split off. That became the 570 area code right. for the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre mm-hmm. area. That was 20 years ago. That was done because at that time, the number of available remaining combinations of phone numbers was starting to run short. That's a fix that lasted about 20 years. But um, right now, there's a, a national third-party administrator that, that monitors these things, not just here in Pennsylvania, but across the country. When you start out with a brand-new area code, you have 792 possible combinations for the, the, you know, the first three digits of your phone number. Um, 7.9 million numbers out there. Right now, the 717 area code at last report, which was at the beginning of this month, is down to just four of those you know, 792 possible starting combinations. So the supply is getting toward the end. Um, there was an application made last year to the PUC to ask for alternatives. Something needs to be done so that when somebody needs a new phone number here in the future, uh, they can actually be assigned a new telephone number. There were two proposals that were considered last year, and we had public input hearings on those. The first and and the recommended recommended alternative from most of the witnesses, the industry, um, and and other third parties was an overlay where you add a brand new area code, but it covers the same service territory. So nobody that has a current 717 number would need to change. The change that would be required is everyone needs to start dialing with 10 digits. The other alternative that was considered last year would be a geographic split. 
like what happened 20 years ago when the northern part of the, the 717 area code was split and 570 was created. There haven't been very there haven't been many national splits in in recent years. It tends to be generally unpopular because essentially you force half of the residents in that and half of the businesses in that coverage area to physically change their number, and that requires changes in business policies, stationary signs, advertising, and a variety of other expenses. So the overwhelming majority of the witnesses who testified and the people who commented last year when we were having hearings were in support of the overlay. Overlays are commonly used all across the country. This is a process that a number of other states are going through as we speak. Um, And most of the other area codes in Pennsylvania also have overlays with one exception, and that's the 814 area code uh, further to the northwest. That's the only area code in Pennsylvania after 223 fires up that that will be a single area code. And mostly rural areas of Pennsylvania with 814. And and slower growing. 814 does cover a very large geographic territory, and likely at some point in the future, you know, there'll there'll have to be a consideration about what to do there. But... uh, you know, it, it, it's a change, and uh, it, it requires a change in habits. That's one reason why we're reaching out to folks now. You can dial with 10 digits right now, and the calls will go through. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a voluntary or permissive 10-digit period. That began starting in March. Basically, the, the, you know, the orders from the commission earlier this year said, telephone companies, you need to be ready to start making this switch in March. But then we, we've been reminding folks along the way that you have some time to get used to 10-digit dialing. You have some time to reprogram your devices or make sure that you've included the area code with all the numbers that are stored on your cell phone or on your speed dialer or in your, your business system. Um, but August the 26th is the day that starting on that date, you need to dial 10 digits or what you'll get is an automated message that prompts you to hang up and uh, dial again using the 10-digit number. Is it a good idea to start using the 10 digits now? It's good to get into the habit. It's good to check your contacts. Uh, The other thing that we're encouraging folks is look into what automatic systems you may have. You might have an alarm system. Uh, You might have a a medical alert or, or, you know, life support system that automatically dials a telephone number to alert somebody if the alarm is tripped or if you you push a button. Uh, Check with your service providers for those systems to make sure that they're set up to dial a number using the 10-digit area code because, again, after August the 26th, if somebody just dials a seven-digit number in 717, they're going to get a message that prompts them to hang up and dial again. So now's the time. You have five weeks left to go through the information that you have. Make sure your, your mobile phones, your landlines, your tablets, your fax machines, alarm systems, security systems, if you automatically call forward certain calls or have a, an automatic dialing button for your voicemail system, um, if you're still on dial-up internet and you have your computer set up to automatically dial a number when you, when you open up the internet browser or anything else that essentially does that for you with Without you having to think about dialing a number, make sure that you've added the correct area code for those things. Boy, that's some really good information, Niels, because I didn't even think about the contacts part. I just got a new cell phone, and, you know, there's probably 200 contacts in there, of which half don't have an area code. And I would assume that most people are in that same situation, but it becomes even more important for the people you just described who may have a medical condition, alarms, whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there, there are a lot of systems that we don't think about, and really some of those systems may have been set up before this was likely. Now, chances are if, 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 you, if you pick up a new phone today, it's going to prompt you to enter an area code along with the rest of the telephone number. Uh, and in a younger generation, they don't even think about numbers. It's a contact or a button that you push on the phone. Um, same with speed dialers. You, you may have, you know, helped a, a friend or a relative or, or you know, an older member of your family uh, set up a speed dial system with just buttons that, you know, tells them to call you or, or, or their daughter or, or their doctor's office, other things. Make sure that the area code's been included in those systems so the calls actually go through. And if you still manually dial, it's good to get into the habit now of dialing those first three digits. It's going to be either 717 
or 223. Um, the big thing, though, for consumers to remember is regardless of which of those two area codes you dial, if it's a local call for billing purposes, it's still going to be a local call. And that brings up another question. What about dialing one? Of course, you know, we haven't had to do this for some time now, but a lot of us old people, uh, you know, that we've done it over the years, got in a habit if we're dialing another area code. Right. Is it required to dial one? It's not required to dial one if you're inside the 717-223 area code dialing another number that's in 717-223. So if you're making what would be a local call, it's going to stay a local call. You just need to dial the 10 digits. You'll need to dial one if you're calling outside, if you're calling a number that's outside the 717-223 area code. So if I we'll, do we'll dial... to consider long distance. If I do dial one before 717 or 223, will it mess it up? I mean, will I be able to connect? That's that's a technical issue. It, it, it's up to your telephone provider. In most cases, the call will still go through. But that's a that's a provider-by-provider provider thing. Okay. And, again, if you have a, a questions about this, uh, Niels is only going to be on with us for a few more minutes, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. 800 numbers don't change, right, Niels? 800 numbers will not change. All right. So if you if you have that 800 number committed to memory, it will not change. Right. August 26th to dial 10 digits. Right. And then sometime after September the 26th is when folks will start seeing that new 223 area code pop up. Basically, what the commission said earlier this year was as long as 717 numbers are available – and consumers want a 717 number, the, the companies should give them a 717 number. But when those numbers have finally been exhausted at some point after September the 26th, then the companies are free to start assigning 223 numbers. You know, there are a lot of people when this is considered think about, uh, you know, whether there's any additional cost to them. One of the first things they think of, especially businesses, uh, anyone who has letterhead out there that they publicize their their phone numbers, uh, and they think about that additional cost. This way with the overlay, there shouldn't be that much in the way of uh, additional cost. But let me ask you this. Is there anything that would cost customers more? No, because a local call is still a local call. Say say your neighbor across the street or your, your daughter, your son-in-law, your doctor's office, they happen to get a new phone number at some point in the future, and they're assigned a number from the 223 area code. If it was a local call and a non-toll call to, to make that call right now, it won't be any different with the new area code. All right. Let's take a few phone calls here. Uh, we're, we have uh, Senator Argyle coming up in just a few minutes talking about uh, his proposal with the uh, lieutenant governor's office. But uh, let's just take a couple calls here. Faith is in Lancaster. Faith, you're on the air. Okay. I, it, I don't know if I missed some of the prior, but I'm a bit puzzled. I'm in the 717 area. Now, will I get a 223 inserted into my phone number and will people calling me from out of my 717 area have to call 717-223 and then my number? No, Faith. The number that you have right now, and I'm assuming you have a 717 number, that is going to stay the same unless you ask for that number, unless you ask for a new telephone number. So your phone number is going to stay 717 and whatever it is, and anybody that wants to call you is just going to have to dial 717 and then your number. That doesn't change. Kathy is in Enola. Kathy, you're on the air. Hi there. I listen to you just about every day, Scott. Well, thank you. I really you. love your show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I have Verizon Fios, and I've been dialing 10 digits for a couple years. But I don't have to dial 1 no matter where I call. I can call 215, any old area code, 267, 814, 724, all that. No 1. I don't know. 
Maybe it's just Verizon. But. Well, and, and because you're using a Fios provider, they may have a slightly different dialing scheme. Uh, the only change that you're going to need to do is make sure that you have 717 attached to any of the local numbers that you would call. Oh, trust me. All my 300 and some contacts have 10-digit numbers. <laughs> right. I'm ready to go, baby. So you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you sound like you're, uh, you're already locked in, you're ready to go. And most people, you know, a lot of people have already been dialing 10 digits. Yeah. There's nothing that will stop a 10-digit call from going through. In fact, the, the telephone providers are all required to be able to connect 10-digit calls right now. Uh, that's part of the adjustment period. Uh, and if your system's working right now and it's dialing 10 digits right now, then you're good to go. All right, Kathy, thank you very much for your call. I had another uh, question here, Niels, from Linda in Hummelstown. Uh, are the numbers with the 10 digits going to show up in phone books? They will eventually show up in the phone books. Okay, but I guess they, they almost have to. And really, nowadays, you know, we really don't use phone books as much as what we used to. Yeah, and the majority of those are done by third-party providers. They will have to eventually begin to differentiate what a 717 number is versus what a 223 number is. Yeah, but, I imagine uh, that's happening like when 610 came in uh, in the eastern part of the state and replaced some of those 215, same with 570. Sure. Uh, you know, this is changing all the time. Let's take one more call. Hans is in Lancaster. Hans, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, just a quick question about why 223. I know New York got an overlay 330. Is there any rhyme or reason for the exact number? Uh, I did hear a story down in Cape Canaveral, Florida, that they chose 321 because, you know, NASA launches, you know, rockets and space shuttles. It's kind of a neat thing. But is there any reason for the actual number, or is it just random? Ah, uh, good question. The, the Thank numbers, you. <laughs> that's a good question. And the numbers, um, not just for, for this area, but for all of North America, are, are handled by a, a third-party administrator. They're the ones who keep track of the supply of remaining numbers and the other numbering schemes to make sure that it's kind of consistent all across the country. What they do is they will randomly select a number, but they use a criteria to, to attempt to make sure that a new area code is not similar to any other surrounding or adjacent area codes, so there isn't that kind of easy confusion. So, Niels, we're almost out of time for uh, this portion of the program. Any advice that you would leave with our listeners? I think the, the advice now and the advice from now through August is check your devices. Uh, you know, sometimes when you're in a hurry, uh, and especially if you've only really functioned in the 717 area code, realize the area code goes back to 1947. So there are people who've been 717 for quite a long time. Make sure you've, you've included 10 digits in all of your essential numbers. Make sure that you're dialing manually 10 digits, and check those automatic systems. Look around the house. Look around the business. Uh, see what's speed dialers, and any other automated or storing system that you have uh, so that that is set up, especially for, like, the alarm systems, the medical alerts, and, and other things. Check with your service provider. They should be taking the steps to make sure that those calls continue to go through and those devices are ready, but, but we certainly want people to be able to complete their calls without any problems once we get to the end of August. Nils Fredrickson is the press secretary with the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission. Nils, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott and we have more information on our website if people want. All right. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community General Osteopathic, and West Shore Hospitals. More information on our locations is available at PinnacleHealth.org. Pennsylvania is one of only 13 states where voters choose a candidate for lieutenant governor in primary elections, who then runs with the party's candidate for governor in the general election. Amid reports that Lieutenant Governor Mike Stack and his wife may have mistreated employees, legislation has been proposed to allow the candidates for governor to choose their running mates for lieutenant governor, like presidential candidates do when picking a candidate for vice president. It would take a constitutional amendment, but that's a step Republican Senator David Argyle of Schuylkill County is willing to take. David, uh, excuse me, Senator Argyle, welcome to the program. Good morning. 
All right. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. So, Senator, what's driving this, the, the, the current troubles of the lieutenant governor, or was this something that uh, you thought about beforehand? Well, quite honestly, I've, I've seen different people uh, talk and, and write about it in the past, but yes, the uh, the current issue with the lieutenant governor and the governor really brought it to the to the top of our agenda. When you say the current issue with the lieutenant governor and the governor, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, Lieutenant Governor Stack and his wife have been accused of mistreating employees. But what about uh, Lieutenant Governor Stack's relationship with Governor Wolf? Well, that's I think the the key issue. Uh, both of them have admitted that they don't work together. They're rarely seen together. Uh, they don't talk to each other for, for weeks at a time. I think in the past we've seen some lieutenant governors really be a, uh, uh, an important part of the administration, uh, heading up uh, Pima, heading up different energy issues. Uh, Jim Colley uh, served uh, Governor Corbett well in a, in a variety of fashions. And so it can work, but it doesn't always work. That's why we decided it was a good time for a constitutional amendment. But why is it important that a lieutenant governor work closely or at least work with, with the governor? I mean, this has happened before. I think back to the Rendell administration. Governor Ed Rendell and his lieutenant governor, Catherine Baker Knoll, apparently weren't very close or you know didn't do a whole lot together either. Well, now, think about your radio station or, or my office or my son's old soccer team. You want the number one and the number two uh, people in the office to work together. I think that's when you get the the biggest bang for your buck. I've never seen in the public sector or in the private sector an organizational model where they say, yeah, you should have these top two people and they should completely ignore each other. That's just a waste of money. Mm -hmm. Uh, Speaking of money, and I just thought of this as, as you mentioned it, would this save any money along the way? I think it will. Uh, I think you get a bigger bang for your buck. Uh, There's also been an idea that I want to explore with the uh, public hearings we're going to hold on the issue this summer, where the lieutenant governor would actually serve as a member of the cabinet, and so you would have one fewer, uh, you would have one less member of the cabinet. And so let's say the lieutenant governor is an expert in banking. Well, then maybe that uh, governor would want the lieutenant governor to serve as secretary of banking as well as lieutenant governor or DCED or legislative affairs or or name it. And so if you do that, then I think you're talking about not just getting a, a bigger bang for your buck, but literally saving millions of dollars over time. I guess what I was thinking about with saving money was uh, the primary election, that if you didn't have lieutenant governor or candidates for lieutenant governor on the ballot, uh, you know, in some way, whether that saved money, I don't know. Maybe not as much as what uh, you're you're thinking with these millions of dollars if you combine positions. Uh, You know, a couple other issues here. You know, you, you talked about maybe combining positions. What it made me think of is that Pennsylvania is, as I said, one of 13 states where we elect a lieutenant governor separately. But there are other states that don't even have a lieutenant governor. Do we need a lieutenant governor? When things go badly, you really need a lieutenant governor. Uh, Think about when Governor Casey became ill. Uh, Think about when uh, Governor Ridge uh, was called to Washington to be our our first uh, Secretary of Homeland Security after 9-11. But it's not just in times of emergency. I think uh, in a normal day, the governor needs backup. The governor needs help. And uh, for the governor to go out after the the, uh, primary election and say, okay, this is who I want uh, to be my lieutenant governor, that then is ratified by Republican State Committee, by Democratic State Committee, and then they run together as a team in the fall. I think that's a much better model than, than the one we have today. I think if they can campaign together, the hope certainly is that they can work together and serve together. I wonder, though, and I'm just thinking out loud here because I'm comparing it to uh, the presidential candidate choosing a running mate uh, you know, for for vice president. And often in the last 50 years, it's been described as a political decision, you know, the, where the vice presidential candidate is from. 
Could the same thing happen here in Pennsylvania where a gubernatorial candidate would choose a candidate for lieutenant governor based on geography rather than where that candidate, whether that candidate would be a good governor? Uh, Scott, I think the same thing could happen under the existing system. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But give me go a little further with that. I just think that uh, the the current model, you know, it's it's embarrassing. I mean, think about the the stories that have been coming out of the the second floor of the Capitol for the last couple of months. I just think that there's a, a much better way to do this. I have more than a dozen Republican and Democratic senators uh, willing to sign on to the bill as as co-sponsors. Uh, the state government committee, uh, Mike Fulmer, the chairman from Lebanon County, has indicated a willingness to, uh, you know, do the public hearing this summer. I think this is an idea whose time has come, and I think if we get it on the ballot, I do think the people will support this. I'd like to hear from our callers or our listeners right now. What do you think about, uh, uh, you know, what Senator Argo is is uh, proposing here, where the gubernatorial candidate would choose the candidate for lieutenant governor? Maybe not the sexiest issue in the world, but it is something that uh, Pennsylvania voters have an opportunity to make a decision. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. And, uh, you know, Senator, one thing I'm, I'm curious about, you you work with uh, Mike Stack, and he was in the Senate before becoming lieutenant governor. He is now president of, uh, of the Senate. Have you had a conversation with him about this? And, you know, I imagine that wasn't the, the most comfortable conversation. I have not had a conversation with him. Uh, we've seen each other uh, several times. He hasn't brought it up. I, I haven't brought it up either. But quite honestly, at the uh, the public hearing this summer, I'd like to bring in all of the living lieutenant governors, uh, you know, Bill Scranton, Mark Single, Mark Schweiker, Bob Jubilier, Joe Scarnati, Jim Colley, and Mike Stack. I'd like to hear what they all uh, think about this. That, what kind of questions would you ask them? I'd say, would you think that this would work better? What was your relationship with, with your governor? Uh, what kind of tasks that uh, were you assigned? And I think you will find that in many previous cases, the lieutenant governors were kept very, very busy in a lot of different ways. That's not the case for this governor. As far as I know, uh, this lieutenant governor, this governor has never assigned uh, anything to, uh, to Mike Stack. We had a, a listener who sent in an email and says, uh, you know, her concern is about the governor getting more power. Uh, says this is a work situation, that it, it shouldn't be a friend. What about that? Does this give the governor to more power? I don't think so. I mean, we're still making it uh, subject to the approval of the state committee. And then the voters get the final say in uh, in November. So, no, I, I don't think you have to worry about, uh, you know, some kind of a, you know, I don't think the governor's going to be picking his sister-in-law to run with him <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. Okay? Well, in-laws, I don't know whether they'd be at the top of the list. Maybe a sister, but uh, <laughs> a, a sister-in-law or a mother-in-law would definitely be out, I think. There you go. That is great <laughs> As you mentioned, this would take a constitutional amendment uh, that it would have to pass the General Assembly uh, two straight sessions, and then voters would vote on a referendum. Um, that's no easy task. I mean, we don't have constitutional Constitutional amendments often here in Pennsylvania, especially what well, we don't on the national level for a long, long time, maybe a little more often here in Pennsylvania. That is no easy task. How do you get that done? Step by step by step. And as I said, so far, I think we're off to a, to a good start. But uh, one point we should make, we're going to have to elect the next lieutenant governor the old fashioned way, because there's no way we can get the constitutional amendment through uh, before next year's election. But I am hopeful that uh, this would be the last time that we would use our current flawed process. And I don't know, this is a political question, but maybe a personal one, too. Would you like to see Mike Stack not run again? <laughs> You're asking a Republican senator. I know. I, okay, I know that. I understand if, uh, that. If I'd like to see continued dysfunction on the Democratic side of the ticket, I guess from a political standpoint... <laughs> The uh, the uh, you know the 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 more uh, 
craziness on that side of the ticket, the, the better it is for the Republicans. But I think as an advocate of good government, I hate to see what's happening today. Well, I, I should have taken the politics out of it. Uh, but, yeah, as an uh, advocate for good governance, I, I guess that's what I was was looking for. But uh, you think that this has risen, that this behavior has has risen to the level that you think he shouldn't run again? I mean, that's a decision that, that Mike Stack is going to have to make for himself. And, of course, uh, the governor is going to have to decide whether he, he wants to run with him or not. But based on what we've seen so far, I can't imagine those two uh, individuals patching this up and working together in the future. I think it's just too far gone. What about the amount of money spent on the lieutenant governor's office? I mean, uh, in almost every news story where we've heard about the stacks issue, uh, you know, we hear about the the home in Indian Town Gap, you know, swimming pool, all those things. Uh, You know, it sounds like we do spend a lot of money on the lieutenant governor's office. And that's why I think if if we're going to continue to spend any money uh, for the lieutenant governor's office, we ought to get the, the biggest bang for the buck. It ought to be someone that doesn't just stand in front of the Senate, uh, gavel us into order, and then uh, when we leave, just go back to the swimming pool. I think that there, there is a lot more uh, that can be done. I also, quite honestly, think we ought to, uh, it'd be a, a great idea for the Independent Fiscal Office to take a look at all of the charges of that office and see, just like we're talking about reducing the size of the House of Representatives, uh, see how we can reduce the costs in that office. Uh, We have an email here from a listener who says, I think the two state chief executives should run together. They certainly are not very effective if they cannot work together like the situation we're currently in. And to be honest, I've never given much thought as to whom I voted for for lieutenant governor. Usually just pick the individual in the same party as my vote for the governor. Well, you know, in the primary, they're all either Democrats or Republicans. But often what happens is that uh, voters are not familiar with a lot of the people who are on the ballot running for lieutenant governor. So it sounds as if uh, this email backs up what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. I I think the more people think about this issue, and you described it well earlier, it's not a sexy issue, but I think it's simple common sense. Mm -hmm. But let me bring something else up. Uh, If this were to pass and were to become a constitutional amendment, taking decisions out of voters' hands, that's no small thing. It is something that, that I, I've, I've thought long and hard about, but I, I, I think that when you look at the current situation, uh, the voters will still get the final say. You know, the, the, the governor, the candidate for governor, will make the first selection after the, the primary. It then goes to Republican committee, the Democratic state committee. They get the second decision on whether or not to ratify or go back to their candidate and say, nah, you know, pick somebody else. And then the voters get the final say. But you know today, and and I think you'd indicated it, and I think that that email also noted it, that when people go into the voting booth, you know, very, very, it's very unlikely that they're going to pick a candidate for governor depending on who the candidate for lieutenant governor is. And so right now, when they run together as a team, most people are making that decision based on the candidate for governor, not the candidate for lieutenant governor. You know what that email reminded me of, though, is how we choose judges here in Pennsylvania. And there's been a move for the last 20 years that judges should be appointed rather than, based on merit rather than uh, voters electing them. Uh, it's kind of a similar situation, but wh- what do you think about that? I think that uh, there's a lot of sense in that. Uh, Earlier, I'd been reluctant to support it, but as the costs for the uh, judicial elections continue to escalate, uh, I I really think that that may also be an issue whose time has come. Why were you reluctant to support it before? Because I I like the idea, I, I think at the county level, I think the people can understand the candidates. Uh, they, they, you know, they, they, it's close enough to the people that they can make an intelligent decision. But in a statewide election, uh, let's face it, most people aren't going to know a lot 
about the candidates for Commonwealth Court, Supreme Court, Superior Court, no matter how hard the, the candidates work. It's a big state. Senator, I'm going to take you off guard here for a second, although I know it's probably one of your favorite topics. I only have about a minute left, but uh, you have been one of the champions of property tax reform in this state. Senate Bill 76, where do we stand with property tax reform right now? Well, we're still a couple of votes short. Uh, You know, Mike Stack killed the bill in the Senate uh, two years ago on a 25 to 24 uh, tie-breaking vote. But uh, the Senate did this week approve uh, sending a constitutional amendment to the voters this November uh, on the issue. I think that could be a big step forward. Senator David Argo of Schuylkill County, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, as always. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Billy Porter is the classic Broadway triple threat. He sings, he dances, he acts. Porter won the 2013 Tony for Best Actor in a Musical for his performance in Kinky Boots. He's also producer. The recently released album, Billy Porter Presents the Soul of Richard Rogers, is a collection of Rogers music performed and produced by Porter. And he's very focused on supporting the performing arts and communities throughout the country. Billy Porter will perform this Saturday at a benefit concert for the Prima Theater in Lancaster. I had an opportunity to talk with Billy Porter. Billy Porter, you recently told a New York TV station that through persistence, you succeeded despite being a black, gay, Christian man who was told I'd never be blessed because of who I am. Talk about the obstacles you encountered as a black, gay, Christian man. You have all day. (laughs) You have all year. (laughs) How about the short version? That's a a question that's not answerable in in this kind of short amount of time, but just suffice it to say that every turn is a roadblock. Every turn. Everywhere you turn is a roadblock when you represent something that people fear. Fear is a horrible thing. (laughs) And it breaks us down. And, you know, we have to face the fear and we have to um, snuff it out. And that happens by living truthfully and authentically. That's how we do that. Because once people see who you are, once people meet a person that they fear, meet that human being and exist with that human being, the fear goes away. Most of the time, the fear goes away. But uh, And that's coming from both sides. Let's, you know. let's talk about that fear, though. I mean, what, what kind of, uh, if you can give me some specific examples of uh, how you overcame some of those obstacles as your career progressed. Um, I just... You know, it's a matter of showing up and telling the truth. You know, no matter what, at every every turn and at every cost, telling the truth. And that's not an easy thing to do because it's easy to be who you are when what you are is what's popular. It's harder to do that when every choice that you make is considered something that's wrong or bad. You combat it with showing up. You combat it. We combat that with visibility. You know, visibility is our... um, our strongest ally. You had to question yourself many times in your life. Uh, I mean, what were some of the doubts that you had? Initially, you know, religion creates just a general pantina of doubt (laughs) and shame and fear, because very often that's sort of what the MO of religion is. Um, so I had to deal with that first, work on myself through lots of therapy, work on myself through, um, surrounding myself with all different kinds of people who have different kinds of ideas, um, about the world, you know, some that are different than mine, some that are the same, you know, but just, it's about, um, it's about exposure, you know, exposing yourself to something other than the radius around you where everybody looks like you, where everybody talks like you, where everybody agrees with you. (laughs) You know, I don't want everybody to agree with me. And it just, you know, I don't know. It's persistence. You know, I have a mother, you know, I have a mother who is the strongest person I know. She was born with a, with a disability that would have destroyed a lesser person. She lived a life that was never 
supposed to happen for her. And so for me, it's like I look to that. I look at that. I look at that strength. I look at that power. And it motivates me every day. Still? Still. What, what was it about your mother that, uh, that motivated you that uh, you looked at and said, okay, this is, this is where I get my strength? She got out of bed every day in a world that said anything that she tried to do would not work. Anything that she, you know, she, she, has, a, she has a physical disability that, um, you know, on paper looks like she should be at home in a wheelchair doing nothing. And she never accepted that. And she always pursued greater things, a greater life. And as a result, she had that life. She had a life that nobody ever anticipated she would be able to have. You know, I have my health. I have my strength. I have all the accessibility of my lamp. If she can do it, so can I. You're appearing this Saturday at the Prima Theater in Lancaster for a charity event for the theater. Last month, you performed in Chicago to raise money for youth theater and art programs in underserved communities. Uh, you know, one of the questions that comes up often, especially when we're talking about money on the government level, are we as Americans not paying enough mind to the arts? Uh, arts education has always been on the background in America. Arts education and the arts in general has always been in the back. It's always been something that is extracurricular. It's always been something that our thought leaders um, don't think is necessary. It's been proven time and time and time again that it actually is necessary. And when there is no art, there is no life. Now, with that said, we as artists, we as liberal people cannot expect our government to pay for it. They don't want to. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's time for us to get our checkbooks out and pay for it ourselves, like they do. We got people on this side who can pay for this stuff. And that's what's so exciting for me about things like Chicago. That's what it, what's exciting for me about things like Cleveland. I was also in Cleveland. You know, there's a bank in Cleveland called Key Bank who, who gave $10 million to that organization to make sure that the funding is there and present for people to learn about the arts, for people to be influenced by the arts, to people, for people's lives to be changed and saved through the arts. I was one of those people. I didn't have any money. <laughs> you know, I didn't have any opportunity except for what are now being called entitlement programs. Um, that entitlement program that is such a bad word right now is the reason why I'm talking on this phone to you right now. If that didn't exist, I wouldn't be here. Period. The end. I would not. There was no access. There was nothing for me other than somebody looking at me and going, oh, there's a program that's available <laughs> for you, for somebody who sings like you. Come over here and take this class <laughs> for free. Uh, President uh, Donald Trump's proposed budget calls for the elimination of the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. What would this mean for theater communities across the country? You know, it's devastating. It's a devastating um, cut. It's a devastating and evil um, focus. Um, but we don't have time to sit around and talk about it and complain about it anymore. We have to figure out what the solution is. We have to figure out how that does not go away. They ain't paying for it. <laughs> so get out your checkbooks, people, with money. <laughs> Left, Left-wing people with money, get your checkbooks out and let's pay for it ourselves. <laughs> That's the only way it happens. You were born in Pittsburgh and attended the Pittsburgh Creative and Performing Arts School. You went on to yep. graduate uh, from Carnegie Mellon College of Fine Arts. How did growing up in Western PA help define the performer that you are today? Well, there's so I mean, the arts is, you know, a lot of people don't know much about this, but, you know, Pittsburgh is full of art. It is overflowing with art from all different directions and I was very lucky 
to um, be born into a place where it was all there. It was all right there. And I had access to so much um, just in terms of training. And I mean, you know, you have to train. You have to understand what you're doing so that you can make a living doing it. It's a craft. And I had those opportunities. And that's what I got from Pittsburgh. You know, lots of theater, lots of music, lots of art, visual art, everything. It's right there. That's what a lot of people, I think you're right, that a lot of people, especially from outside of Pennsylvania or outside of Western Pennsylvania, uh, maybe even, uh, you know, the Midwest don't realize this, that they still think of Pittsburgh as this old steel town, this old Rust Belt town. When Pittsburgh has... And it hasn't been since before the 70s. No, Pittsburgh has transformed (laughs) itself so much into a high-tech center and an entertainment center, as you said. Yeah, it was 47... I'm 47 years old. Steel was already gone by the time I was born. I don't understand why people think it's still a steel town. I think that's a little bit of, you know, I think that that kind and what I love about Pittsburgh is that, you know, whoever it was, whoever our leaders were, you know, all that time ago, starting with Mayor Caligiuri, you know, the focus became something else. Not holding on to ideas and jobs that are never coming back. It's not a rust belt. The jobs didn't go away because some immigrant took them. The jobs went away because the company moved those jobs overseas. That's why it went away. So let's make sure that we put that focus and focus our anger on the right people. It's going away. It's cheaper overseas. So what did we do in Pittsburgh? We found other things to focus on. College, you know, colleges, the arts, technology, medicine. You know, Pittsburgh UPMC Medical Center is top five in the world. It doesn't happen overnight. Like I said, I was four, I'm 47 years old. Steel was gone when I was born. It yeah. took almost 50 years to create what this is. But it's a totally self-sufficient city. If we remember, you know, President Obama on, the, on his first G20 summit, I think it was, a G20 summit, he had it in Pittsburgh. Because he said these, Pittsburgh has been able to survive. This, this this crash, why? And how are they doing that? Let's go to Pittsburgh and figure it out. Yeah. Nobody listened, but we figured it out. You, you know, you should uh, probably do some kind of tourism commercial for Pittsburgh after the things you just told me, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that for another day. In, in, in 2013, you helped create the character in the Broadway production of Kinky Boots, written by Cindy Lauper, based on a book by Harvey Firestein. Now, you got to work directly with them, right? Talk about yes, that. Yes, I did. Talk about that because you're talking about two pretty strong personalities there and two, uh, you know, top shelf performers. Yeah, they both, I feel, for me, um, are, you know, Harvey and Cindy are both pioneers of a movement, an equality movement, an acceptance movement, a love movement. They're the the godfathers of that. And as a young person, I would sit back and watch them and marvel at their courage and their bravery and their fortitude. And to be able to be in a room with them and creating material that sort of joins the pantheon of that kind of work, of the work they have created in the past, is is a blessing and an honor. And it it was awesome, 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 awesome. You won a Tony for that role. I'm just curious, does it mean more when uh, the people you're working with are that high caliber? Yes, of course. Yes. It it also means more when the work is coming to you on on your own terms. Um, Lola is a culmination of me making decisions to live inside my truth, to, to present myself authentically and truthfully. And I took all the hits in a career that comes with that. And to come to the other side and to have it happen like Kinky Boots is breathtaking. You released an album last month that uh, you produced as well as you perform on. Billy Porter presents The Soul of Richard Rogers, a collection of Richard Rogers songs that you perform with Broadway stars from Hamilton, The Color Purple, and The Sound of Music. Talk about this album. Is it more than another Broadway compilation? You told the Huffington Post that it's an album of resistance with sass. Why? Yes. 
Well, Richard Rogers and Rogers and Hammerstein and those guys were they were pushing the envelope. They were talking about issues that were uncomfortable, um, whether it was uh, you know domestic abuse and carousel and she stays with him, or uh, racism in uh, South, South Pacific. You know the sound of music. You know you got Nazis coming in, occupying. You know it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff that makes a person think, makes you think. But it's through art, and I think that's how we can change hearts and minds is because it enters in a different way. It's not didactic. It's not wagging fingers. It's through storytelling. And so you know the music that I chose um, for the album has a lot of it has those elements. In it, you know, love is the overall theme. Right now, it feels like love is an act of resistance in this world today. So I'm going to actually continue to make sure that I keep loving everybody as much as I can for as long as I can. Well, let's uh, talk about uh, someone I'm sure that uh, you do have a great relationship with, and that is Leslie Odom Jr. of Hamilton fame. He appears on the album, and you've talked about him as your protege. What is it uh, like at this point in your career when you can mentor someone who's had this kind of success as Leslie Odom? I'm a lover of talent. I've always been a lover of talent. And when I was in you know, my downtime when I wasn't working, I started teaching and I realized that as a teacher, you know, the students, I learned more from the students than I'm sure they learned from me. And that has been such a, a gift to me. It's benefited me in all of, and everything that's come after um, to see the people who I've worked with have successes makes me beam with joy and pride. Now, you'll be performing at the Prima Theater in Lancaster on Saturday night. What can the audience expect? I'm not going to tell you what they're going to Oh, come on. Expect. Give me a, a sneak peek anyway. <laughs> you got to come. You got to come <laughs> and see it. Um, I'm doing some old stuff. You know, well, not some old stuff. I'm doing some stuff from my uh, Broadway album, the last one, Billy's Back on Broadway, uh, sort of the big band orchestral album. And then I'm doing... The R&B stuff, I, I sort of slowly kind of move everybody into the R&B sound that I finish with that. So, so that's what it will be. No, it's going to be very fun and very fabulous, and you will be dancing in the aisles and on your feet by the end. And that is a prediction. Uh, Billy yeah. Porter, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. Billy Porter at the Prima Theater in Lancaster on Saturday night. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking about organ donation on Smart Talk. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org/spine.